On this week's Behind the Idea, we're going back to National Beverage Corp, the owners of LaCroix, the sparkling water sensation. In search of a comparison to understand LaCroix, I asked Vince Martin how the sparkling water trend compares with craft beer, and he made the case for why sparkling water will stand out. LaCroix in Chicago is probably what Coke was in New York 50 years ago. Sparkling water is very different. It's a growing category. There's going to be some market share losses. I would maybe not losses, but there's going to be some new entrants. I think there's enough category growth that LaCroix keeps growing for a long time. I then spoke with Rachel Arthur of Beverage Daily. She named sparkling water as one of the big three trends in the beverage industry and again illustrated LaCroix's attractive positioning. So then when you look at sparkling water, sparkling water has this section in the middle where it's able to appeal to people from both categories. You've got the flavor and you've got the fizz from soda, but then you've also got the healthy hydrating image that bottled water has. So you're getting the best of both worlds, really. And that's what makes it, I think that's what's really going to drive the category forward. We're going to pick apart these comparisons and trends to see how long LaCroix's role might last and what that means for shares. But first, a couple notes. Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Nobody on this podcast has any positions in any stocks named, except for Vince holding a short position in Tesla. We recorded these calls on Friday the 12th and Monday the 15th of October, respectively. I also quickly wanted to thank two listeners who left us a recent review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. First, Dogie Smith wrote, Excellent content. My only complaint is that I feel like they are talking in a bathroom. Tough but fair, Dogie. What if I told you it was a large bathroom? And then Poe T calls this Critical Thinking 101 for the Investor Class, which is far too nice a title for a review about our podcast but all the same, very much appreciate Poe, I'm really grateful that you believe we spur critical thinking and thoughtful inquisition. We only hope we achieve half of that. If anyone else would like us to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else, we would love to have it. Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com if you have any feedback you want to give directly to us. We always love to hear from you. Okay. Let's crack open another can of LaCroix and get into it. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Mike Taylor isn't here today, but I'm joined by Vince Martin, a former colleague of ours and an author on Seeking Alpha. We're here to talk about National Beverage Corp, ticker symbol F-I-Z-Z, Fizz, maker of LaCroix Sparkling Water. And we're here to talk about the bull case for the company in light of the discussion we had a few weeks ago between just me and Mike. So Vince, welcome on to Behind the Idea. Thank you for having me, Daniel. So there, I felt like our discussion on Fizz kind of hit on three points. There was valuation, there was the concerns over, or maybe four points, concerns over their competitive status, concerns over the accounting issues, and then the CEO. Maybe we just start with the CEO, because I think that's the most idiosyncratic part of this. He's a quirky guy. There have been allegations ranging from, 
the SEC kind of cracking down on his boisterous language to the issues with sexual harassment accusations. He, he's not your typical person who's gone to McKinsey and gone to the sort of other finishing schools of the business world. How do you get comfortable or uncomfortable? Like I, I sort of, we talked about it was, there's almost the, the idea of the Caparella zone, whatever he does, it's kind of, it all goes, you just get used to it. And so it becomes hard to kind of weed it out. How do you deal with that? How do you, when you're approaching a company like Fizz, how do you kind of think through that? Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I think one thing I would say, and and this comes from somebody who has spent a lot more time um, analyzing Tesla of late than than I probably should, is okay. I, I'm not. I, some of the allegations are serious. I, I'm not going to downplay the sexual harassment allegations. Glaucus had a short report where they they talked about earnings manipulation. We we can we can talk about that aspect of it a little bit later. But a lot of the stuff to me. Um, strikes me as a little overblown the fact his his press releases are are bizarre he loves uh exclamation points mm-hmm. evidently mm-hmm. you know i i certainly i, I but I, I don't know that any of that really matters to the investment case i, I thought the most uh, this in that sense in terms of his corporate communications i think the biggest the biggest issue I've seen was last year when he he accused uh, a Maxim Group analyst of of being part of a short attack. You know that's not good. <laughs> uh, certainly, I'm just not sure that it really matters. That aspect of it really matters to the stock. He is a quirky guy, um, and I also think it's an interesting question, uh, given that he's 82 or 83 years old, right. um, as to how much influence he really has in the company at this point. His son is the chief operating officer. Their disclosures are notably thin. You know, we don't know at this point whether to what extent he he perhaps is is a figurehead in the corporate face and, and the 75% owner. We do not know to what extent he has a hand in the day-to-day operations of the company either. But as far as the quirkiness goes, I truthfully... I, I don't, uh, no pun intended, I, I just don't, I don't put a lot of stock into it. The question about his age is obviously the other big thing here. What do you think? So do you think there is, given his son is involved as COO, do you think there is already a natural progression that steps on or, or what's the sense that you get from following the company? Because I think some, some bulls are kind of looking, a lot of times what happens when you have somebody with a major stake in the company and, and you have somebody getting up in years, you kind of look, okay, they've got to sell. They, what else, what else are they going to do? What do you see about, what do you think about that thesis or about that possibility? I don't know. I mean, I think that that goes back to the problem. I mean, that their disclosure is just, is so thin, no conference calls. They still haven't broken out LaCroix sales, even though that's the, you know, I mean, they, they, they could change their name to their corporate name, LaCroix. It's the only thing anyone cares about. Nobody's buying this company for Shasta and Fago. On both fronts, you know, we don't know. We, we can speculate. And, and I think, you know, this is one of the dangers of, of owning a, a company that you don't control. It's, it's up to him. And, you know, if he decides that this is his baby and he wants to keep it in his family, uh, I mean, I think the good news is that, you know, his son is there. For all the noise, you certainly can't question the execution over the last 10 years, whether it's how they've expanded, whether it's the, the redesign of the can, which I think took place in 
around eight to 10 years ago. I can't remember offhand. If they go it alone, you know, if, if he were to retire tomorrow, I don't think this is an Elon Musk case or, or, um, I'm trying to think of who the other, you know, Jamie Dimon to, to really stretch the analogy. I don't see this as a story that rests on the CEO from an execution standpoint. In terms of a sale, I think that's really interesting because the biggest, that makes sense, right? You're going to, you know, you're, you're going to sell out to Pepsi or Coke. You're the leader in a growing category. They have no growth. You know, they're buying the growth stories in these, in these categories. But I know, you, uh, Mike, on your podcast, you compared it to craft beer. And, and I've made the point here that Coke, you know, if Coke buys LaCroix and that you know, buys the maker of LaCroix and that gets to the consumers, do consumers leave LaCroix the way that some craft beer customers have abandoned their choice beer when they when they, quote unquote, sell out to, to Anheuser or or to um, to Miller Coors? Well, and that's really because I, I, I wasn't even thinking about that, but you have covered the craft beer companies a lot. And one thing that's interesting there is we were wondering about competition. We, we may come back to this, but we were wondering about competition and, you know, Pepsi has tried to enter with Bubbly and Coke has sparkling water ga- business and so forth. But it would, in craft beer, you would think that the competition is not from the, up high, even if they buy up a lot of these companies, it's from below, from new breweries opening up, new authentic stories that people can connect to, and then they can deliver on enough of a scale to kind of eat away at market share. Is that a sense? I I get we're just going to speculate about what would happen in a takeout, for example, and I think shareholders wouldn't care. But is that something, when you look at the competitive landscape in general, is that something that LaCroix has to kind of be on their guard about in terms of these smaller companies or do you think it's do you think they've gotten to the point where it's now just about continuing to execute they have the market share they have the brand recognition and so forth um i think it's a little bit of both you know i think you guys mike mentioned on your podcast and i think i've seen similar numbers their market shares in the range of 30 percent i mean the one thing about that too is it's not really evenly distributed market share. I mean, I don't know what their market share in Chicago is, but I can tell you having lived there and been there on and off for a decade, LaCroix in Chicago is probably what Coke was in New York 50 years ago. I mean, it is hmm. when you when you, you get catering to your office, you know, if you go to the, go to an office and they're having lunch for a meeting, they have LaCroix. Every people have it in their homes. People do not hold parties in Chicago without having that as an option. They are so entrenched in their core markets. So I do think there's some risk of, of disruption from the smaller incumbents or smaller competitors, rather Polar, I know has has some nice market share, I believe uh, on the coasts. Uh, there's a new brand that has shown, and I wanted, was trying to look it up, I can't remember it, but there are there are some new competitors the difference between this and craft brew, craft brewing, however, uh, you know, there are six thousand breweries in the U.S. right now. There's right. such unbelievable supply glut that I think that Craft Brew Alliance, which I followed for a while, and I, I think Sam Adams, even though that stock has rallied, I think that industry still has another leg down. Added to the fact that demand, that sales overall are actually starting to fall. 
LaCroix is, sparkling water is very different. It's a growing category. There's going to be some market share losses. I would, maybe not losses, but there's going to be some new entrants. I think there's enough category growth that LaCroix keeps growing for a long time. Let me go back to Caparella for a second, because I think, again, I'm just kind of, you, you talked about a lot of the wins that they've had over the last eight to 10 years from the redesign. We talked a lot about the different quirky marketing things they do. I don't know. This is one of those things that's sort of hard strictly from studying the filings, but I'm curious if you've had any other exposure to the company to get a sense of, is he the sort of leader that's just opening space for people to then try these sorts of quirky things? Or is this something that's kind of coming from the top? Not not that he's literally sitting there coming up with market slogans, but this sort of push, like, what do you, because that seems to be the impression I got from what I've read from our podcast with Mike is that LaCroix has this sort of spirit about them that makes it, if you're, that has helped them to establish that brand positioning, to establish that role that they're like Coke in Chicago or whatever. And it seems how, what's your sense of how, how much that's a part of the organizational mandate and approach and how much is just sort of taking shots and not dumb luck, but kind of trial and error and, and, Give, empowering people down the line. I don't know. Are, are, do you have any sense of that, of, of where this sort of the ties between Caparella and the brand image that LaCroix? No, not really. I mean, there have been a few articles over the years that I've read some coverage of their marketing strategy sort of in trade publications. I don't recall Caparella actually being quoted in those. Um, like the can design was actually that was outsourced. That was something that wasn't done internally, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. I think the organization gets credit, but going back to my original point, I, you know, we don't know to what extent uh, this this eighty two or eighty three year old founder really is involved in the day to day in the day to day activities, at least at least as an outsider. But I think overall that the, the the strategy behind Lacroix certainly ha- has been impressive. When I mean they when they bought it um, in the late nineteen nineties. I think it was in their fiscal 97 they bought it it wasn't even like it was like the second best thing that they bought they bought that a company that owned that and uh and ever fresh juices and the juice business was actually if you from their limited commentary they they ever fresh is first in in the filings and in the press release that's that was the business they they were going to get into juices along with soda and then uh, they also got this lacoy thing which was kind of big in Wisconsin and the Midwest because it was made in Wisconsin, but it was sort of a tag along in that deal. So maybe that's where, so, because yeah, I think if you would have asked somebody 15, 20 years ago, uh, I, I, what, what, what was the date of that acquisition? It was 97, I thought you said, or? I believe it, I believe it occurred during their fiscal 97. Yeah. Okay. So like if you ask somebody 97 or 96 or whatever that's taking place what do you think is going to be a bigger business flavored water or juice business or a soda business i think look who knows but i'm not an expert but it would have occurred to me that it would be common to say yeah the juice soda that's a growing market and so the sparkling water is a growth category it is it is sort of powering obviously national beverage corp 
what is your your sense on how does this avoid being a fad? Maybe it's already well past the fad stage, and that's uh, that's fine. If it is, like, what do you get a sense of how big this could be? We we were just, I think we were quoting numbers about how big alcohol is or how big soda is. I I don't think this will actually kill those sorts of categories, but it does seem to have the tailwind of health. It does seem to have the, uh, if you have clever branding, like in LaCroix's case, like it does seem like it could go far. What do you, how do you kind of look at that? The staying power of this and how, how far the sparkling water, the flavored water trend might go. Uh, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think that's for all the other stuff. I think that's the question. Uh, if you think that this is a category that grows for a decade, then you buy fizz. If you think it's a fad, then you don't. Um, I, I think, especially with the pullback to about 100 as, as we're recording this, um, that's the case. You know, I mean, it's an interesting question. I, you know, the, the, the two comparisons I've used in the past is one is one is Monster Energy, which I think is a very interesting comparison, both as a stock and as a business. The other one is Snapple. And going back to the original point, you know, why, why were they trying to buy Everfresh in 97? Well, Snapple was pretty big. That was a, you know, that was a second tier Midwestern focused Snapple and Snapple was, was doing well. And of course, I believe that was about the same time. And Snapple turned out to be a historically bad acquisition by Quaker Oats. Would you bring up Snapple as a comparison and I'm not, I'm trying to pull up their numbers now, but they're, I think they're in Keurig Dr. Pepper. It might take me a while to kind of pull out the specifics of their growth right now. Snapple to me seems like it did kind of peter out a little bit. Like it's omni, it's present. You see it everywhere, but also whether it's, and maybe, maybe LaCroix is a little bit safer from this. I, I guess we're going to get to the health question. The health question may be next, but I guess Snapple to me is, am I wrong to think that it, it did kind of peter out? And so that might actually be a little bit of a cautionary tale in the sense of this was a trend, but it's it's not as big a deal as it used to be. No, absolutely. Snapple, I think it is one of the cautionary tales here. Uh, I'm sure there's others that, that we have sort of have been forgotten to the dustbins of time. Mike Taylor on your last podcast brought up Tab. But yeah, Snapple, I think, is a very cautionary tale about what happens when, when, when tastes change. I think to your point about health, I think the advantage is that Snapple was something that was marketed as healthy and really wasn't. It was just, it was a different kind of sugar water. Whereas I think LaCroix, with the zero calorie aspect, with the lighter tastes, I think it has longer staying power on that on that front. So if if we're taking Snapple as a cautionary tale here because it's it's something that things did peter out, how do you for LaCroix, what would you want to watch for to make sure that or sparkling water in general, flavored water in general, what would you want to watch for to make sure that it's not going to recur or that it's not going to be the same story playing out again for for this category? I mean, I think you keep your eyes on, on the data as close as you can. Um, I think you obviously one of the issues from that standpoint is you, you, you're kind of pretty much relying on Nielsen and stuff like that. There aren't, you know, Coke and Pepsi aren't really breaking out their sparkling water numbers and, and their market share is probably declining anyways. Polar is private. Some of the smaller companies um, that are that are, are 
early stage or, 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 um, or private as well. So you, you, that's one risk here is you basically, you, you may not know it until you see it in the national beverage numbers. You may not know that that slowdown is coming. But I think certainly, even though uh, Q1 growth looked lower, that was because they, they got rid of uh, a small business on SodaSide. Um, you know, they're still doing 29% volume growth in Power Plus, which is basically LaCroix. So um, at the moment, there's no evidence um, that the category is slowing down too much. And so maybe is the, the other sort of question here, and so like the latest news on the stock is that they're being sued for claiming that they're all natural when they're not. And it seems like whether it's suits, whether it's articles in the journal or wherever else, it seems like people don't quite get what would make LaCroix work, which raises questions. And I'm talking about from the pure flavor, the pure standpoint of the actual product. And so that would seem to also be kind of a pertinent risk here. Is that something that you can size as a risk when you're somebody who, I mean, you're not a scientist, but you know, like it's not like a necessarily obvious thing for you to be able to check out. And it, as you mentioned earlier with the disclosure, it's not as if they're going to give away everything that they're doing. How do you kind of size that or deal with that as a angle to watch out for? I mean, I think the biggest thing to pay attention to, at least in the near term, um, is to what extent uh, that gains. Uh, any traction outside of our little world uh, of investing in, in press releases and things like that. I would think certainly, uh, I'm loath to use anecdotal evidence, but I would think if, if I was in Chicago and I heard someone say, oh boy, you know, uh, I thought it was all natural, but evidently it's not, I would probably take that as, as a bit of a worrisome sign. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've kind of seen that. I mean, I think the, the big risk, if that, if that spreads, is you know, we've seen this, this stuff with diet soda where people have sort of said, uh, well, look at all these chemicals. We were, but we were drinking it because we thought it was better for us, but it's just full of chemicals. Those people are then going to LaCroix. And if you, if those, you know, if those consumers start, start thinking that this is now chemicals, then they go to, uh, I don't know where they go at this point. I guess they just drink water. I'm not sure, but, um, I, I, I'm skeptical, you know, from what I can tell, I, it's not a story that has gained any traction, and it, uh, given uh, it's a class action lawsuit, rightly or wrongly, I, I, I have a little bit of skepticism towards it. Maybe then let's go to the, the – let's call it the foundational short thesis is the Glaucus report that I think you've already mentioned. And you've kind of touched on it in various articles over the years, but – and I don't think we did a great job of representing your views on it in the last call, but how do you, what makes you comfortable? Cause I think what I found interesting when reviewing the, the report was that a lot of the concerns were around a time that LaCroix national beverage corp was thinking about selling itself to Azahi. So that's where this sort of, it's one thing to not have a ton of disclosure when it's a public company, but it's 74% owned. Like, okay, fine. They, if they want to play close to the vest, that's their business. But as they're looking to get sold, and that's, we've already talked about that as a potential scenario. What do you think of the report? What, why do, what gives you confidence looking at Fizz that that report is actually not too 
too on point or what makes you confident about the company despite that? Well, um, at the time, which I think was September 2016, right after that report came out, I, I, I wrote an article on Seeking Alpha uh, about the report. And as far as the manipulation claims and as far as, as the numbers go, I mean, I basically went through each of their 10Ks. And the, the argument from Glaucus, the short version, was that they changed auditors, and I think it was 2009, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, their margins started expanding. And if you went through the 10K year by year, as I did, it all made sense. Glaucus was complaining that, you know, their SG&A wasn't moving. Well, I lived in Chicago. They didn't, they weren't out marketing. You know, LaCroix's growth sort of came out of nowhere, which is kind of the point. Some of their expenses went down uh, a couple years after that as fuel costs fell. Uh, and if you look at the last couple of years when LaCroix sales really have ramped, the other expenses have followed. They've had some leverage on OPEX, but it's it's rising double digits. Gross margins have expanded, um, not hugely, but they've expanded pretty steadily, which makes sense. You have a little more scale, and their sales mix is shifting from sodas, which which we get most people guess are lower margin to uh to the water which is is higher margin just because there's there's no ingredients it's water and these and this essence whatever uh right. whatever that might be i just if you really you know so like i said at the time going through it year by year uh the numbers all made sense and i think that they still make sense now and so you kind of say, oh, well, it doesn't look like they're playing with expenses. And in terms of revenue, I mean, there's Nielsen data out there that, that the analysts covering the stock are using and that, that we can pick up pieces of in various coverage. The, the, the point of sale data supports, you know, certainly is in line with what they're reporting in terms of their sales. The category is booming and LaCroix is taking market share at the point of sale. That seems to be what their numbers are showing, too. I don't see anything that really jumps out if you look closely. Have you had cases, just to generalize this, have you had cases where you've been following a stock, you may or may not have held a position, and a short thesis like this comes out? Uh, I, I mean, you cover a lot of stocks at CKF. I imagine it's it. you've been side sideswiped isn't the best word, but you've been hit by short ideas on stocks that you followed what's your is there are there examples where you've either just immediately sort of made the intuition that i need to double down or vice versa that i need to back out or um where you've done the work and been pretty confident that actually you know this guy or woman is right that this short idea is pretty good and that i need to like so, this is an example where you've done the work and feel comfortable with the position. But is are there other cases that you can recall in your investing career where it played out differently? You know, there has to be, and I can't. I really can't think of any. I know Burlington Stores, Spruce Point Capital came out and, and criticized mm-hmm. their accounting uh, last year or the year before. That was a stock that I've covered and, and recommended for a while. And I I did think they made some interesting points. I didn't think it was quite enough. There was another one that just popped into and out of my head. I can't recall. I think I, I basically have been lucky in the sense that I haven't run into one where I covered it or or, or owned it and had a, had an accounting type of that, you know, accounting uh, type short case um, or, or even some sort of malfeasance based short case 
that that undercut it. Um, I will say though, as I wrote at the time, um, you know, I had actually bought uh, I had bought Fizz shares on Monday, if I recall, and the Glockus report came out on a Wednesday. Um, so I certainly was still very open minded towards the idea that, you know, as I started reading it, because I think they spun a good story. There were certain certain there were certainly points while I was reading the report where I was about to. To, to mosey on over to interactive brokers and and dump this dump the stock before it got any worse. Um, but taking the time to go through it, I don't think that they did anything wrong. I just don't. I think that they. I think what they saw as malfeasance was ironically evidence of just how unique Lacroix is as a product and how crazy, how crazy it. What a perfect storm its growth wound up being. It's interesting because I think Glaucus, one of the first reports I became aware of them, which was a few months into my Seeking Alpha career as an editor, uh, I think they came out on Tivana right as Starbucks was buying them. Starbucks was buying them, I think. I I happened to, I was sort of had stumbled on the busted IPO idea, and I'm also a big fan of tea. And so I think I, I don't think I had a very sophisticated thesis, but I bought small position in Tivana at like 11 got lucky that Starbucks decided to buy them at 15 or so a month or two later. But then a few weeks after that Glaucus came out and I think they were a report of like toxic elements in the tea or something right like that. And I will correct the record if it was somebody else who wrote this report, but I remember, and this is something I, I don't know that there was ever a ton of, I think Starbucks said we're comfortable with this and the deal closed. And I don't think Starbucks really cared about Tivana's tea per se. I think they cared about brand. They cared about some other way to get into that category. I think they've shut down most of the Tivana stores. I don't know if it was a great purchase for Starbucks in the end, but it is, it is interesting when sometimes. I think sometimes those reports are spot on. I think it's great to have those sorts of reports out there, but then sometimes they do get into the weeds a little bit. Not, and it's not that it's trivial, but there are times where they're focusing on something, whether or not they, they may be right. They may not have hundred percent expertise in, in that sort of area or whatever else, but then ultimately it's not what the, market cares about or it's not what the what the company cares about or you know in in the case of Starbucks acquiring like they weren't it, it didn't see, it obviously didn't stop the merger but um right and i mean i think that's i mean i i think Glaucus, you know that report i mean they they have raised you know they raised uh, uh you know uh, a couple interesting points i did not i did not do not put put in, I, I don't have any faith uh, i i have i have Pretty much complete faith uh, in the numbers. I I trust I trust Fizz to the extent that I trust pretty much any other small or mid cap company. I assume the numbers are good. If they weren't, you know, people do bad things. I'm never never shocked by it, but I don't don't see any reason to to call Fizz out on that point based on on what they've reported. But Glock has made some good points. Um, the executive compensation here, one percent of revenue to Caparella's company, that just sort of gets divvied up in a way that 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 nobody knows about. Some of the stuff you mentioned that the potential merger with Asahi, some of the communications there aren't exactly flattering. 
I think that I, I think that that report kind of fits what you're talking about. It it made some interesting points. It certainly highlighted some risk. But I think the the overarching story that they were trying to tell, I, I, I don't think was correct. And and given that the stock's up, stock's pretty much double. I think I think stock was at 49 ahead of the Clockers report. I think that bears that out a little bit. So one of the things, and I don't know what the valuation was at the time of that report, but one of the things you think about is that it's one thing if a you know a net net or a company with a 15p or whatever else gets accused of something, there's a little bit more, there's less priced into the stock. And so that doesn't, that's not an excuse. That's not to say that companies at low PEs should feel free to do what they want, but it's, there's less, there's less of a bullseye on them, right? And, uh, with Fizz, you've got a high valuation. You have a volatile stock due to the low float. You know, it's down about 15% since we talked about it. And, and also I misunderstood on our previous podcast, I misunderstood and you explained this to me when preparing for this show, but I thought that you were saying they might, they would be able to quadruple earnings in five years, but you were actually talking, we're sort of already in that they're closer to the end of that quadrupling process. And so I guess this is going to, that's a long sort of segue into we've got a relatively high valued stock. It's an industry leader in a growing category. There's lots of good things about it, but it also, it, at what point do you, as a as an investor, look at this stock and say, okay, this is, you know, let's say it's it's pulled back fifteen percent or whatever. Where does it? Where does the math start to really make sense? Or how how long until? I don't know. A, a lot of times with the stock market, we're kind of chasing shadows to decide what the pr- value should be versus the price and when what the market is thinking and when is it switching categories or you know changeover of the shareholder base or all those sort of cliches but like how do you how do you view that with fizz how do you sort of get your head around those sorts of mainly the valuation but also then given the fact that they have questions raised about them frequently and given the fact that there's low float like how do you kind of position with a company like that um well i i mean i think the one thing i would say and and i know the pullback has something to do with it but you know i don't think the valuation here really is all that prohibitive if you back out the net cash right now i think they're at about 26 times trailing earnings if you normalize that for the for the new tax rate they're at 20 times ev ebitda i mean i don't i just i mean i understand that you're you know, part of the you know part of the issue with that is that you still have, by my guess now, you probably have thirty eight percent ish of that business that you're paying twenty times EBITDA for, is the soda business. So you have to kind of adjust your valuations to understand that that means you're probably paying thirty times plus for Lacroix. Um, but overall, it's still not, you know, given their overall growth, I still. I mean, if Coca-Cola is, is at 22 times forward earnings and, and 17 times EBITDA or whatever, wherever it's at at the moment, um, Fizz looks ridiculously cheap to me in that context. Um, more broadly, I think, I think the way that I try and look at it is I think the valuation is, and it has been for a while, it's been something that they can grow into. And so until you see something that says the growth story is going to end, 
the valuation is attractive. And I think I did write, I think it hit about 120, uh, and I wrote an article, it might have been late last year, where I kind of said, okay, maybe we, uh, maybe we, we settle down a little bit here. I think if you're paying under 30 times earnings and 20 times EBITDA, even accounting for the drag from the soda business, I think that's a very attractive valuation. And if you think that the growth is going to continue, then the stock's going to, the stock's certainly going to outperform the market. How much of that is within the, con- even though we've had a shakeup in the market, how much of that is within the context of us being near all time highs and with, like you said, Coke having such a crazy multiple for a slow growing company? Like how much of that is just where we are in the cycle, in the market cycle? and where valuations are. I think that's a fair point. And I should, you know, I, I'm being a little bit, a uh, little bit glib because I'm comparing it to Coke, which I think whose valuation I think is, is quite literally absurd. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand how, how you're buying, paying 20 times earnings for a $200 billion company so that it can make $600 million acquisitions to get it to buy growth. It is bizarre, but that's a different podcast, I figure. I think it's more just a sense of, you know, and, and I, mean, I think you, you see my writing enough to know that I'm not really a fan of of putting together a five, five-year out models and uh, right. and uh, EBITDA and PE multiples to the decimal point to, to get my exact price target. But if you just look at what the growth, what the growth is, the one, I think the biggest issue from a fundamental standpoint, the operating margin expansion probably starts to um, taper out here and near term, uh, higher aluminum costs. Uh, they took a little mm-hmm. bit of hit on that on Q1, but their margins are still going to expand somewhat over time simply because of the mix shift that as, as LaCroix becomes a greater and greater percentage of the business each year, the margins are going to steadily improve. And you're paying, I mean, I think the numbers, you can take the market out of it. It's still, like I said, earnings, it's 26 times free cash flow is actually a little better. It's probably low 20s free free cash flow, uh, multiple to their fiscal 2019 numbers. So the way I kind of see it is if they keep growing and they still have the opportunities to get into the convenience store channel, they still have some geographic, they still have a lot of room to expand geographically in the U.S. Um, they've talked about going into Canada recently. I think that to me, both in terms of channel and geography, it's a multi-year growth story. And if they continue to grow the stock, I think the numbers suggest that 100. And I think even, you know, at 120, it gets a little dicier, but particularly at 100, if the growth story works, the stock, the stock, uh, it provides double digit annual returns easily. I, I, I think that I don't think I think the issue is more on if the growth story goes rather than what the returns are, particularly at 100, if that makes sense. It does. What would you do if the CEO, Caparella, released a press release announcing a new CBD-flavored sparkling water? Is that bullish or is that... I don't know. I mean, he's 82, so... um... I don't. I don't think he's the guy. They might be a little slower on that. You might have to wait till he retires. But yeah, that would be uh, that would be a riot, and uh, especially in this market, heck, the stock would probably go up. You know, thirty percent on the news. You could be the could be the new uh, new 
the new new age beverages only with a, a real business behind it. Right. I think he would have a real knack for writing that press release to really yeah, generate I, that I excitement. It would, be, uh, it would definitely be, definitely be something. Again, lots of exclamation points. <laughs> Are you you're a Lacroix drinker? I assume you're you're a regular Lacroix. No, I, I hate it. I, I, I oh. Do, I, yeah. Oh wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, I have uh, I have I've tried it tried it a bunch of times and. Uh, it, most everyone I know drinks it. Uh, is is a, is a heavy drinker. I have never just never had a taste for it. Okay. Do you drink any sort of flavored water, or is that just you're not a part of this category? Uh, no, I, I'm not a part of this category. I I uh, I would drink Coke pretty much twenty four seven, three sixty five. Uh, except I'm thirty nine now, and I'm trying to trying to be healthy. So I just I just drink regular regular water. That may be the ultimate bear case for for fizz is that water, regular water is pretty good and it comes out of the tap for a cheaper cheaper rate than buying a bunch yeah, of cans. Yeah, I mean bottled water is 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 you know which is is just one of the craziest things of the last twenty years. I mean, if you imagine somebody in, talking telling someone in the nineteen seventies that that was going to be a a business of whatever size it is, they would have would have laughed in your face. So I think you know, I to me from a feel standpoint, from what I, I, I what I see anecdotally is is the sparkling water thing. Why I don't think it's a fad. I think it's just sort of right in that sweet spot. It's sweet enough that it kind of replaces the soda. It, it's a little bit. It's enough to be a little more enjoyable than water, and it's. Healthy enough, it, it feels crisp enough that that you don't have the guilt that that people like me have of, of drinking drinking Coke or God forbid diet soda. Right, right, yeah. No, I mean it's 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 just interesting to see, and it's been even since we've talked about this. Uh, we then talked. We had we had a podcast about pot and just thinking about what that market is going to look like and just the the sort of the, the idea of a new category, the idea of brand potency and, and the moat that comes from a brand and effective marketing. And I wonder, I sort of wonder if financial types, because we're not as good at marketing, we have less respect for it or less appreciation for it. And so when a, somebody comes in that it's clearly the brand is a lot of their power, it's kind of hard to size it right. Even if you're bullish about it, it's kind of hard to gauge it and so i wonder if that's something that and you know fizz is still kind of under the radar it's kind of a hot topic on fintwit or whatever else but it's it could be that that leads to some of the sort of churn in the stock and the up and down in the stock over time yeah it's i mean the brand value doesn't go into your into your dcf model or your you know into the excel spreadsheet it's 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 difficult to it, it's difficult, difficult to price in. And I think that's, I mean, that's, you know, again, I mean, not to repeat myself a little bit, but I think that that's the, that's the real question here. Uh, as I've written before, you know, uh, one of the analysts who was skeptical say, he said, Hey, it's, it's sparkling water. Anyone can do it. Well, right. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that anyone can do, do it. And I think, I think the fact that Coke and Pepsi, both already have failed um, with Aquafina and Dasani, and uh, I know you got uh, 
Mike Taylor on your podcast was laughing at the bubbly rollout, and and I agree. Yeah. I think that's I think that's just to someone like me who's never worked in the corporate world. I just I look at that and I wonder I wonder what the repercussions have to be. I wonder how that made it. How intelligent people put that to market because uh, it just it looks particularly someone who's who's familiar with Lacroix. It looks it just looks so ridiculously inauthentic. I have to. I do have to shout out our uh, a colleague of mine, Robin Kurdek, who she heard our first podcast and is a big fan of the podcast, and she she wanted to clap back on us and say that she is a bubbly fan. So they they do okay. the bu- the bubbly fan exists. We might need to explore that angle more to see if they have any chance at gaining traction. Yeah, maybe I'm having a little bit of confirmation bias there. But all right, this is really great. This is a, I mean, it's just a fun story because there's, you don't get, you've got a weird character in this, in the CEO. You've got the exclamation points, a lot, a lot here to unpack. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast to kind of work through it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Vince. Just a quick halftime note before we begin our talk with Rachel Arthur, which I really enjoyed. I wanted to remind you that in November, we are going to be doing a four-part mini-series on Amazon, The Giant of the Modern Age. We've already talked about it once, but now we're going to dig deeper and go beyond just what the two of us know. We're going to have guests on. We're going to dig into certain topics at length. I'm really curious about key man risk, for example. And we're going to see if we can uncrack anything new on one of the most important companies in today's market and economy. If you have any suggestions for guests, topics, or questions to ponder, Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. We're already hearing from you about this and would love to hear more. And stay tuned starting November 6th. Now to the discussion with Rachel. Welcome to Behind the Idea. We're continuing our discussion on National Beverage Corp., the owners of LaCroix. Uh, we're speaking now with Rachel Arthur, who writes for Beverage Daily, a trade publication that's focused on the beverage industry. So, Rachel, welcome on to Behind the Idea. Yeah. So let's just start. Uh, how big is the sparkling water trend is sort of what's driving, obviously is driving LaCroix forward. What, how, what are you seeing in industry-wide? How big is this? Is this going to, we, th- we threw out the idea that potentially you can start throwing out big numbers like the alcohol market or the soda market and think, well, how much of that can sparkling water take? What is the perception in the industry as to how big a deal sparkling water is right now? Well, I think the really interesting thing with sparkling water is if you if you sort of take a step back to begin with and look at the beverage category as a whole. So, on one hand, you've got carbonated soft drinks, uh, your sodas, which they're flavoursome, but people are quite worried about the sugar, the calories, mm. the artificial ingredients. And then on the other side, you've got bottled water. So obviously, bottled water, people know it's very healthy. They look to it for hydration. But there's there's perhaps a limit to how exciting bottled water can be when you're looking at flavors and things like that. So then when you look at sparkling water, sparkling water has this section in the middle where it's able to appeal to people from both categories. You've got the flavor and you've got the fizz from soda. But then you've also got the healthy, hydrating image that bottled water has. So... You, you, you get it, you're getting the best of both worlds, really, and that's what makes it. I think that's what's really going to drive the category forward. I know specifically, it seems like with Lacroix specifically, there seems to be all the time questions about 
the what they're putting into it. Is there any question in the industry about, you said about the health, but it just occurs to me, do people in the industry feel comfortable that this will, that there are no threats, that there's no sort of lurking issue with what they're doing to get the flavor out of the water, to get that best of both worlds? I think things like natural and clean label, that's all really important in the industry at the moment. And I think manufacturers are, are very much well aware of that. They know what consumers want. And they're also aware that there's an increasing level of scrutiny now as well. So what consumers are really calling for is, is for companies that are very transparent about what they're putting in their products, about exactly where those ingredients are coming from, how they're processed. So I, I think that increased level of scrutiny is is going to become even more important. So when you compare that to the legend of Coca-Cola having their magic sort of ingredients and who knows what goes into it, it, it sort of seems like we're in a different playing field where you have to be transparent, you have to be clear, maybe pun intended with the water, but you have to be clear about what you're putting into it and you have to be you have to identify with your customers. You have to be able to say, look, this is something that's good for you. Is that sort of the the new mantra in the industry? Yeah, because with this growing awareness of health and wellness, people people know what's good for them and they know what's not so good for them, or at least they've got a broad awareness of that. So it's things like, um, like I mentioned, clean label. So I can be an average consumer and I can go to the shop and I can look at a beverage brand. And sure, I may not understand the ins and outs of all the ingredients, but if it's a simple ingredient list, I've got a broad idea of what's going in my product. If it's a long ingredient list with a lot of complicated names and numbers, then I'm starting to feel slightly skeptical about what, what it is exactly that I'm drinking. Yeah, I think transparency is really important today. Um, people want that clean label. They want to be able to look at a beverage brand and they want to be able to understand what's on the ingredient list. They don't want a long list of complicated names and formulas and numbers and things they're not quite sure what it's all about. They want things they can understand and things that they can they can relate to. It's interesting because I've, I've noticed recently with uh, – I don't tend to drink soda often but from time to time. And I've noticed that the calorie count is much lower, but like you're getting at, the ingredient list does seem to be much longer and much more – without me ha knowing exactly what's in it, it, it raises an eyebrow for me. And so that's interesting, sort of the challenge. So how do the, how do the big beverage companies compete then? How do they adjust to this changing reality where, where sparkling water, especially, which, and I, my next question might be about how you actually compete in general when, when the ingredients are so transparent, but how do the big companies, the Cokes, the Pepsis, I mean, I know Pepsi recently acquired SodaStream or is in the process of acquiring SodaStream, but how do these companies sort of deal with these, these new, with this new space and with this emphasis on transparency and on naturalness and on cleanness when that's not really what they've lived by in the past? Well, I think the first important thing to, to note is uh, the, the wider portfolios of these, uh, the, the Coca-Colas, the PepsiCos. I mean, sure, we know these companies for their sodas, but they now have a much wider portfolio that includes bottled waters, sparkling waters, uh, ready-to-drink teas, uh, coffee. So these companies are now about way more than just the traditional soda that we know mm -hmm. them for. 
So perhaps one of those ways that they've uh, widened those portfolios is through acquisitions. You, you mentioned PepsiCo with SodaStream. That, that's a very recent one. Um, Coca-Cola with Topo Chico is a, is a recent one as well. That was last year. And I think what's interesting is that big companies are very, very aware of what they're good at and what they're less good at. So they're aware that there are these small companies that are innovative, that they can move really quickly, they're on trend. But they also know that they've perhaps got better distribution, better marketing. And so it's uh, combining those two skills. But then it's not all about acquisitions. Uh, PepsiCo's Bubbly is, a, is an example here of something that they bought out themselves last year. And it's also about perhaps brand extension of uh, existing products. So taking a product line that you've already got in the marketplace and saying, hey, can we do a sparkling version of this? Hey, can we add more flavors to this? Um, so there's many different ways you can involve your portfolios to get in on these new trends. It seems like the brand question is is a big one because obviously these companies have great experience with developing brands over time. But when you're Thinking about sparkling water, I suppose you could say the same about any beverage category to some degree, but it seems to me starker as an outsider in sparkling water. There's not a – sure, the taste is there, but ultimately there's a lot of identifi- identification with the brand. We found that in talking about LaCroix, that there's sort of an image that they've built up in the US. It also seems sort of easier to create that brand for a new outsider. Maybe there's a lot of noise, but – between social media, between potentially figuring out ways to get into distribution well enough, it seems like it's easier to kind of build up that brand, build up that momentum. So is that, how much does that affect this? You know, you mentioned Bubbly. How is that going for Pepsi and how much are they able to, are there success stories so far for these incumbents in kind of fending off these new brands or at least co-opting the trends and being able to capture some of the growth that's coming from this new category. Yeah, so branding is really important. It's really important in any beverage category. And obviously, the more competitive that category becomes, the more important your branding becomes uh, on, on, a, on a crowded shelf. Um, Bubbly is an interesting one. That's a fairly new launch uh, that was launched last year by PepsiCo. Um, But already they're saying it's projected to exceed $100 million in measured retail sales in its first year. So they're obviously really optimistic about the brand. They really feel it's something that's strong and it's something that can go places and it's something that does resonate with consumers. Um, PepsiCo has already got other water brands like uh, Life Water. That, again, is something that they've put a lot of effort to in the brand. So Life Water is very much about supporting emerging artists. It's about um, displaying creativity. So they've really built a strong brand story around that product. So it will be really interesting to see how both of those brands develop. They've obviously got a lot of drive behind them. And they're obviously brands that PepsiCo is really enthusiastic and optimistic about. So watching those two brands is going to be fascinating. Are there other brands, just quickly, are there other brands that PepsiCo, for example, has in this space? I guess SodaStream would potentially become one, but are there other brands that they're kind of in a similar direction? Well, as I said before, with both uh, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola and any of these other big companies, they are looking at diversifying their portfolios. So they are looking at other brands outside of soda, which uh, could be in water or they could be in uh, iced tea or any of these other categories. 
to go back to the sparkling water trend, it's, you know, you talked about a lot of the, the benefits in terms of transparency, natural, clean, and the best of both worlds flavor, but still healthy and low calorie or no calorie or whatever else. Have you seen in your career, have you seen other trends that are sort of parallel to this? Like, do these sorts of trends fizz out? How much of this is sort of the hot thing of today, but it fades later? I'm thinking in my last conversation, we were, Snapple came up as an example in the US. And I don't know how global Snapple has been, but Snapple was sort of a big thing in the 90s. But I, I'm sure I run into it when I'm visiting the US, but I don't really think of Snapple. It doesn't seem like as powerful a brand. I'm just curious if what your sense is of how how unique obviously we're coming at this through the the lens of LaCroix, but how unique is this? How much how often does this happen that a big new trend comes into the industry? Well obviously trends come and go and they're stronger or they're weaker, but I think with sparkling water that health and wellness dimension is just going to be so important. It's something that consumers really want. It's got it ticks the health, the wellness boxes, the transparency, the clean label. And it's also a category that is ripe for innovation. So sure, you've got your sparkling waters as you know it at the moment, but you, you've got sparkling can go so many other places as well. You've already got sparkling juices, you've got mm-hmm. cannabis infused sparkling water. So this is something that be- can keep going and it can become a lot bigger. I mean, even if you just look at uh, where you're consuming sparkling water. So, um, for example, you might think of sparkling water as something you buy in a bottle off the shelf, but then obviously you've now got companies like SodaStream who are looking at the in-home consumption occasions. And yeah, I, I think the thing with sparkling water is there's just so many places it can go. That's interesting. You, you, not to diverge too much, but you mentioned briefly the cannabis play. How much is that? That's sort of also a very hot topic right now. Is that something that's on a lot of beverage companies, or is that you're something you're seeing in the industry for real, or is it still sort of okay? Maybe we dip a toe in the water here or there. Is that how? How are people looking at that? I think what makes cannabis infused beverages so interesting is that. It's a bit of an unknown. So certainly there there are brands that are looking into cannabis-infused beverages. Constellation Brands is, is the one that springs mm-hmm. to mind. Coca-Cola has also sort of just been keeping their eye out as to what's what's going on. But it is all still really new. So it's really hard to tell um, where it's going to go, how successful the the existing products are going to be. How is the regulation going to evolve? Um, There aren't actually that many markets at the moment where you can sell cannabis-infused beverages. So it's, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how this develops, but it's still really early days. Um, I mean, certainly it's a hot category. It's going to be really exciting. Um, And I think it's the uncertainty that makes it so exciting. Yeah, no, it's that's we because we talked about Canopy on a different podcast, which is what Constellation invested in. And um, yeah, it's just there's so many people are so excited about it. And so the companies in the industry are sort of trading at crazy valuations. But it's also there is so much what sort of industry is it going to be a traditional beverage sort of obviously a different but is it going to be kind of brand oriented? Is it going to be all about distribution, whatever else? So yeah, it's a really kind of 
green space, as it were. So maybe just sort of to to wrap up, what what do you? I'll ask sort of a a loaded question, but also you're free to go wherever you'd like with it. Like, what is the biggest? What is the biggest thing going on in the beverage industry right now? Is sparkling water sort of the 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 new story or the most a big story in the industry or are there other things that are kind of more relevant if somebody is looking at a coca-cola a pepsico is there something else that they should be paying attention to before they pay attention to sparkling water or where where um where where do you where does does beverage daily spend more of its time or what's what's the big story on your plate so I think there's a few really key trends that you need to look into in the beverage industry at the moment. Health and wellness is a massive one. Uh, and obviously, okay. sparkling water plays into that category really, really well. There's other things going on in that space, like uh, no and low alcoholic beer, for example. You've got an increasing hmm. number of brewers uh, releasing no or low alcohol versions of, the, of their flagship products. So health and health and wellness is a massive one. Innovation. There's so much innovation going on in the beverage category, um, whether that's coming from your smaller brands, whether that's coming from new players, or whether it's coming from the really big established multinationals. Um, and there's just so much going on. You've got a lot of uh, what we call category blurring is where you perhaps take one trait from one sector, but you bring it in with something from another sector. And so you get these uh, these new products where you're sort of, you're not quite sure where they fit on the shelves, to be honest, because they're, they're just really evolving really quickly. And I think the third thing to look out for in the beverage category is sustainability. So plastic bottles, for example, are particularly under fire at the moment, as are plastic straws. There's been a lot of backlash against those things. So a really big issue for the beverage industry is how do we respond to that? Um, so there's a, as the momentum grows, there's a lot of work going on in all aspects of sustainability, whether it's looking about the the um, material you're making your plastic bottles from? Are you using recycled uh, plastic, for example? Are you going to turn to other packaging formats such as cans or glass? But then, it, you know, comparing plastic to cans and glass, you know, how do those actually compare? Um, and uh, then you've also got issues with recycling. How can you encourage people to recycle more? Have you got the availability of recycled material? Um, so, sustainability is just going to keep getting more and more important to any brand in the beverage industry. And presumably not not to be sort of crass about what's an important issue, but presumably with sustainability, there come challenges in terms of cost on at some point, whether it's marketing and uh, best practices or whether it's figuring out better ways to make the, the containers. I assume that that's, that's a challenge for the beverage companies is how to figure out how to do this in a profit sustainable way as well. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. There's going to be loads of challenges uh, on the technical side of things, whether you're making uh, packaging that uh, can stand up to the the demands that we need from our packaging using different materials. There's also examples of brands that are looking at, for example, um, Carlsberg and Evian have both uh, looked at shrink wrap or secondary packaging and said, hey, we can get rid of that. We can look at some new technology to glue our products together as opposed to hmm. putting in shrink wrap or cardboard. There's also challenges in terms of 
the availability of materials, for example. Um, do we have enough people recycling their plastics so that we can use recycled plastic? And yes, you're right, there is going to be a cost implicated in, in all of this. But it is interesting, there was a study out uh, last week about beer and sustainability. And this study said that people are willing to pay more for sustainable beer, and the amount that they're willing to pay is enough to offset the costs of turning to more sustainable practices. So obviously, that's just one study, and that's just looking at one category. But it, it does show that it is that important to consumers. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. All right. This was really, really fantastic. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time. Um, it's an interesting time in the beverage industry. And obviously, LaCroix is an example of that in the US. And I appreciate you sharing sharing your insights from, from your end and from the industry. No worries. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed this two-part interview on Fizz. We're returning to GM next week with at least one and maybe two interviews to better understand that story, so check it out. If you can leave us a review on Apple or anywhere else, please do. We promise we'll shout you out. You can subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, and we'll be on Libsyn soon. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.